Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Welcome back everyone. Just before we begin, a couple of housekeeping-type bits and pieces. Firstly, this will be the 49th podcast episode, which means the next is the 50th, which given my release rate is a very impressive milestone indeed. I will be doing something a little bit different for that, not too different, don't worry, and hopefully that will be coming out at about the end of March 2024, that is, if you're listening to this in the far future, and I am very excited for it. Secondly, I am increasingly doing live shows and intend to continue doing that this year. They're mostly in person, but I am moving online very soon as well, so all you many listeners outside of the UK can also attend. After this episode is released, I'll be making a page on my website where you can see all about that. And also, of course, you can follow me on Fred's Instagram or Facebook for updates. As I speak right now, my Nottingham and Newcastle shows are completely sold out, but my Manchester show on Wednesday the 28th of February at the Pier Hat still has some tickets left. You can find links to buy tickets on Eventbrite or my socials. And on top of my solo shows, collaborations of plenty are also in the works. This whole storytelling thing for me is getting bigger and bigger. And for that, a massive thanks to everyone who has kept listening to this really quite small podcast to the many kind reviewers on Apple and YouTube and Spotify and elsewhere, and to all the people who have supported me on Patreon, even though I'm even less consistent there. Though you don't pay until I do actually make something. While the finished product of this podcast still has more than a touch of the amateurish, as I approach the 50th, I reflect on the fact I've never tried to do one every week or couple of weeks, and that's because I know that the quality would suffer, and I want these to be as good as I can make them. This isn't a particularly favourable way to game the algorithm, which I understand demands consistency and episodes that aren't an hour and a half long because I couldn't make them any shorter. But the reason I've managed to keep going on and then taken this as a base to do more is the feedback I've got from so many people and to all of you who just listen in every time, who clearly really enjoy what I am doing here. I really appreciate every one of you and at the moment this just all feels so exciting to me. But you're not here for any of that, so let's get started. A quick episode specific disclaimer before I start. As you know, I like to drop in references to popular culture, and by popular, I mean stuff that was popular, you know, 15 to 30 years ago, reflecting my rapidly advancing years. And I think that in the case of this episode, certain people might be expecting certain references. So I start with a sad and sorry confession. I have, in fact, never read Stephen King's Dark Tower series. I'm sorry. Looking at how long it is, I think it was either the choice to read that or make this entire podcast. Not this episode, but the whole thing. And I chose to make this podcast instead. Maybe that was a mistake. So I'm afraid that there will be no Dark Tower references. That out of the way, let's begin the story of Child Roland.
we start a long time ago. How long exactly it happened is not clear, but a very long time ago indeed, measured in not tens or hundreds, but thousands or tens of thousands of years. I'm talking of the very first time that some deeply unlucky soul strayed too far into a cave, too deep into the woods, too high on a mountain top, and crossed some incorporeal threshold that may have shimmered slightly in their passing. At this time in history, before proper corporeal thresholds had even been invented, no doors here. And this individual, maybe she or he, but for now we will call them they, they met on the other side of that shimmering incorporeal threshold, something that looked quite a lot like themselves. But it was not exactly like themselves, and this might not have been so strange to them all the way back then as it might be to us now. At that time, Neanderthals and modern humans and others too, they coexisted. Humans were used to encountering things that looked quite a lot like other human beings, but were not exactly like other human beings. And like the Neanderthals, perhaps, the beings that lived on the other side of that threshold, maybe they too have been with us since the very beginning. And perhaps then, that unlucky human who had the first encounter with them was amongst the very first humans of all. Or perhaps those beings came later. The real story of their origins is long lost to time. But whoever that very first human was to cross that threshold, they never returned to the home that they had known. Perhaps they never returned at all. Perhaps they returned to the same where but a very different when, a far future when corporeal thresholds had been invented, and they were shocked, arriving back in a place they thought they knew to encounter a door. Regardless of whether or not they escaped that other world, they were forever changed by the experience, and nobody came to save them. Now, it was many thousands of years after that first meeting with those creatures of the other world, when somebody or somebodies took a long, hard look at the bladder of a dead pig and had the idea of filling it up with air, taking bits of dried skin cut from other murdered animals, sewing them all around the outside of the bladder, and then throwing around the resulting concoction with the greatest of glee before giving it to their children to do the very same. A very human kind of thing to do. And at our story start, it's this that's most immediately relevant. There was a solid thump as the foot connected with the lever, and Bird Ellen watched the ball soar up, up, up and into the air, above the church, where it reached the top of its parabolic arc and then started its long descent, eventually disappearing well behind the church, somewhere far away. It is quite a common trope in films and television, but also a very common shared childhood real-world experience, where a group of children are kicking around a ball, sometimes playing a game, sometimes just 
passing it to and fro, doing some keepy-ups for a bit. And somebody kicks it just a little too hard. Genuinely by accident, or because they're bored, or to show off. And it soars out of the designated playing area, over a physical barrier, and, worst of all, often results in the sound of crashing glass. In that case, everybody scarpers. But if it's just landed somewhere it shouldn't be, they'll goad each other to climb the wall into the golf club or the witch's garden, or the boldest will simply go knock on the door and demand, Please, sir, or ma'am as appropriate, can we have our ball back? And this was just such an occurrence. Bird Ellen turned her eyes to her youngest brother, Roland. And the eyes of his two older brothers turned to him as well, for it was him that had kicked it all the way up and over the church. And he was looking fairly smug about it. I should say here that Bird was not her name. Bird was her title, her appellation. Basically, it simply meant a young lady. And lady being noble lady, rather than that of, you know, disgusting common stock. She was the kind of girl who had the time to kick around a ball with her brothers, despite all of them being somewhere in their advanced teenage years, where most of the population would be out toiling for their masters. Now Bird, B-U-R-D by the way, is a title that's much fallen out of use these days, though I have to admit for a certain fondness for it. But I will address one thing right away that I might leave to the discussion section ordinarily, because as someone who hails from Liverpool, my first thought was that this old title is related to the modern, less respectful title, Bird. As in, my bird, to refer to one's female consort. And I can happily tell you that the internet is divided on whether one led to the other. Wikipedia confidently says, yes, the old B-U-R-D led to the modern B-I-R-D. Other sources are a bit unsure, but suggest it's a coincidence. I particularly like Etymology Online's example of this, saying, quote, The modern slang meaning, young woman, is from 1915, and probably arose independently of the older word. Compare slang use of chick, unquote. So no clear ruling on this. Anyway, you're not here for etymological excursions. Back to the story that's barely begun, as three of the four noble siblings are staring at their brother Roland, who has just launched the ball over the church. We are in some kind of medieval-ish time here, let's not try and get too specific, and we're somewhere in the north of England, south of Scotland, the borders, possibly at a time when neither England nor Scotland properly existed yet. Maybe just after that time. Some say it was at the court of Carlisle, which was an old and important stronghold dating to even before the coming of Rome. And it's as sensible a place as any. A place that old is surely an appropriate one for a legend such as this. The two older brothers, unnamed as they shall remain throughout this story, they looked at Roland in a way that strongly suggested that he should go and be the one to, you know, fetch the ball ring the neighbour's doorbell and ask the crucial can we have a ball back question if necessary. But Roland, he turned to his younger sister. Now she might have rolled her eyes with some exasperation, but you know what, she was happy not to have this fight. She ran off after it, lots of energy to burn, away around the side of the church where she disappeared from view. It had been a good morning, and the lads who, well, they were really young men by this point, they fell about having usual lads' conversation, 
talking about the birds at the court in a manner that made the word bird indistinguishable from its more modern usage. And so they could pass the time for a few minutes until Ellen returned, but conversation amongst teenage boys never comes easily, and there was no ball to kick or throw to provide distraction, and soon they found themselves lapsing into silence, kicking their heels, doing all the awkward things that people do when they're just kind of waiting around, before there were phones or even watches to look at. Ellen! Ellen! they started to call. And when reply there was none, around the church they went to find her and the ball and determine exactly what was causing the hold-up. She wasn't around the other side of the church as far as they could see, and the calls became more irritated. Ellen, where have you run off to? Come on! As they circled around the small churchyard of Bird, Ellen and Ball, there was no sign to be seen, and there were no readily apparent neighbours' walls for it to have gone over, no hills for it to have rolled down, only a few trees for it to have rolled to the base of, and no sign of Ellen at any of them. Their shouts got louder, and irritation turned to all-out anger. Ellen! Ellen! This isn't funny! Stop playing your silly game! Stop being a child! Where are you? Where are you hiding? But there was no trace of her. Eventually they assumed she must have gone back to court. Maybe she was in a bit of a sulk that it was Roland who'd kicked the ball, and it was her who'd had to fetch it back. Annoyed, the three brothers headed back, muttering about girls. And though none of them acknowledged it, yet there was the faintest flicker of worry deep inside their breasts. The kind of worry that we all feel from time to time when... Things don't go exactly as we expect. A worry that we dismiss because in most circumstances that we feel that sort of unease, it is premature. The worst case that suggested itself to our brain, that is not actually what is happening. The missing child is quickly reunited after a brief search, and so we cannot give in to that worry until everything's been properly checked out. The likely possibility is ruled out. Giving in to such a fear now would be very foolish and embarrassing indeed, when Bird Ellen was just back at the castle. They headed back, and when they saw people on the road, they asked if they'd seen a noble woman going this way, and there were shrugs and the shaking of heads, and the flames of fear burned brighter. And when they reached the court, and the guards on the gate gave a, uh, we thought she was with you, when asked if Bird Ellen had returned, the fear erupted inside them, consumed the anger they felt towards their sister, and became a sickening weight in their hearts. The fear soon spread through the court, for this was no ordinary family, not even an ordinary noble family. For Bird Ellen's mother was the Queen, and Roland and his brother the Princes, and Bird Ellen was now a missing princess. Search parties were sent out, and came back empty-handed, Known villains and unfortunate people who were in the wrong place were accosted and questioned harshly, but no answers were forthcoming. Ellen's brothers were leading the search for the sister themselves now in increasing desperation. They had just been with her. How could she have vanished so thoroughly? Every mile of that kingdom was eventually overturned, east and west and north and south and nowhere, but nowhere was Bird Ellen to be found.
how long do you continue a search like that? The longer it went on, the more the certainty that Bird Ellen had fallen victim to foul play or some awful tragedy. But even the royals didn't have the resources to keep it up forever. But the Queen demanded more and more men join the search. Who knows how long it would have gone on, how long they'd have waited before making the agonising decision to finally end it. However, they did not have to, for the answer reached them from another source. They called the old man Merlin. And just perhaps he was that Merlin, the one you're thinking of. But I believe that Merlin, that Merlin was really long sealed away by magic in rock or tree, suffering justified retribution for his awful crimes. No, I believe that this one they called Merlin because he was a worker of magic, and as the name Caesar changed from the given name of the greatest king to become the generic name for almost any king, something that has continued all the way up to the modern days in many European languages, I think the name Merlin may have been similarly used as a title for any magician, who might lay claim to the memory of that original Merlin to boost his own prestige. And this Merlin, while he may not have been as great or as sketchy as that Merlin, he was no phony, and he had been searching for the lost bird Ellen in his own way without leaving his room carved into a cave, surrounded by his tomes, his cauldron and his potions. And in his own manner, he discovered her whereabouts. He broke the bad news to the eldest prince, heir apparent. Why not his mother, the queen, whose husband, by the way, was no longer in the picture? Well, a myriad of potential reasons present themselves, from a patriarchal assumption around rule, to Merlin's own biases, to maybe Merlin and others taking a quite frank assessment of the queen's own ability to take the news, given how she was reacting to the disappearance of her daughter for the news was not good. Seeing Merlin's face, the grave, heavy countenance it wore, the eldest was expecting only to hear the man tell of his sister's death, and said as much. But the wizened man shook his head. No, no, but perhaps it will be better were she, for she cannot be found, for she is not here in our realm. She is not in this middle earth of ours. For I have found her somewhere else. For that day in the church she was taken not by men, but by the people of fairy. And now I find that she is in the castle, the dark tower, that belongs to the king of Elfland. And at the name of the fairies, the king of the elves, said aloud by Merlin in his magically warded cave, with none of the flowery euphemisms and flattering falsehoods that usually accompanied all talk of the fey folk, at the sound of that name, the eldest prince went white. It seems that the ball had landed in a neighbour's garden. The good neighbours, to be precise. The good neighbours who were very bad neighbours indeed. And not just any elf had taken her, but the very king of Elfland himself. The prince shuddered. 
Now, I've talked a lot on this podcast about the Queen of the Elves and how capricious and cruel she could be. And I have mentioned, but focus less on the King of the Elves and how capricious and cruel he could be. But certainly he could. Now, I find myself wondering whether there is but one Queen and King of the Elves, or there are many. But this was something that did not concern Bird Ellen's brother as he grimly contemplated this unwelcome information. Can she be brought back? he asked Merlin. And this was not the time of that first encounter I referenced at the start of this episode countless millennia ago. Since then, humans had spread across the world, made it their own, and had come into conflict with the other folk time and time again. And the ability of a subset of humans to fight against them is one of the key reoccurring themes of this podcast. And that set of humans were typically those who worked iron and those who worked magic. Of which Merlin was very much the latter. And so for many, an abduction by the fairies would have been the same functionally as a death sentence. Bird Ellen's family were as privileged as privilege could be. And they had the magic of Merlin to call upon. The bravest knight will struggle to bring her back, said Merlin. Not exactly the most reassuring words. But should he have proper instruction, then he could just about do so. And I can give that instruction. Instruct me then, said the eldest brother, standing proudly. His thoughts were filled not only with the idea of rescuing his missing sister, but also with the glory that should attach itself to his name when he accomplished the deed. It was glory that maketh the man, and he was a young man seeking his place within the world. And Merlin gave him proper instructions of all that he must do. It had to be him, just one man, no job for an army this. And the eldest brother listened to the instructions and nodded, and after many tearful and hopeful goodbyes from his family, off set the unnamed eldest brother to Fairyland, with a new steel blade and a suit of armour created specially for the task. And, you know, his unnamed status probably gives you a bit of a hint at how it's going to go for him. Following the directions given by Merlin, he journeyed to Elfland. And once there, with regard those crucial instructions... As it says in the original text of this story, he quite failed in observing them. But this was not known to those who waited for his return. Time at the palace in Carlisle passed with agonising slowness, the days dragging for the two remaining brothers and the Queen as they tried to get on with normal life as much as was possible, and not spent every hour watching from the battlements, listening for the portcullis being raised, which would signal the unnamed eldest prince returning triumphantly with Bird Ellen. The first few days were the easiest. Those sick with worry, there was now a plan in place and in progress. He'd be back any day, surely. But the longer it went on, the more the fear began to creep into every aspect of life, darkening it at the edges, and eventually it seemed clear that the king of Elfland had taken not just the princess, but a prince too.
Why? Why has he done this? demanded the Queen, but there were no answers, even from Merlin, except to say that this was the nature of the elves. This was their way to take the young. And yes, I feel that there is an undertone to this tale, an unspoken element, because when adults were stolen away by elves generally, well, there was a particular reason for that, an unpleasant reason. And it was not one that anyone wanted to think about. But nevertheless, it probably occurred to the Queen. And if you're at all unclear what I mean, consider that we're talking about a race of creatures that is like humans, but not exactly the same as humans. And consider, too, the tangentially related fact that humans today carry about 4% of DNA that comes from Neanderthals. After over a week had passed, the Queen, the middle brother and Roland were all at their wit's end. And the middle brother now went to the warlock Merlin, who received him with a grave look. Again, this Merlin gave much advice and instruction, and a sword was forged and then rode the second unnamed brother for Elfland. Following Merlin's arcane paths until there, he arrived. And he was still unnamed. And I think from that you can extrapolate how closely he followed Merlin's instructions. Now it was but only Roland left, the youngest of the four siblings, and he was referred to still by his title, Child. The word does not mean it in the way that we use today, but it still carries a meaning of youth. For the title child was given to noble men who had not completed their training to be knights, whereas his two eldest brothers were proven, fully trained warriors. Child Roland still had some way to go in this regard. He waited anxiously with his mother for news of the return of all his siblings, and despair descended upon the few remaining family members. Two weeks passed, and the Queen forbid talk of failure, but soon enough the whole month had gone and the brothers still did not return. And now Child Roland went to his mother and told her that he would go next, that he would save his brothers and sisters, this young man unproven in battle, But the Queen wasn't having it. She had lost three children now to this other world king, and she was not going to lose a fourth, the only one left. If his two trained brothers could not do it, how could he? She would not permit it. The kingdom would be left without an heir. But Roland begged and begged, claimed that he was the only hope left. How could he leave his sister in that place? What kind of man would he be if he did? And if he was to be king one day simply because the line of succession had been wiped out, then what would the people think of a king who had not fought to save his own siblings? That was no king at all. I'll say again, by the way, that I do not know why anyone else could not go here, but I'm hand-waving that away. In the same way I am the issue of why they just didn't take a whole goddamn army, with a sorcerer maybe, into Elfland. Basically... They can't do that for some reason, because of how the magic works or something. And I will not be taking any further questions on this. Though at another point I might tell you a story about how some people did exactly that. Anyway, 
Roland persevered with his arguments, for he may not have been fully grown, but brave he certainly was, and, quite likely at the back of his mind, was also a feeling of responsibility. For it was, after all, he who had kicked the ball over the church and sent Bird Ellen after it. And while he could not have known that the king of the elves was waiting there, he had lain awake many a night, wondering if he had just simply passed it on gently, or bounced it off a wall, or if he'd gone instead. And eventually, won down by his arguments, impressed by his bravery and determination, and holding some little hope that perhaps he would be successful when all of us had failed, his mother permitted Roland to go. So now it was child Roland's turn to go to the cave of the warlock, Merlin. He had never been to that place before, perhaps half a day's ride from the city, and while bold he entered it with some trepidation. The entranceway was small and dark, and Roland was making his way down a tight passageway, not man-made this, but hewn from rock by the power of the elements over millennia. He lit a candle, and had to make his way slowly, carefully, over sharp and slippy rocks. There was the drip-drip of water that echoed around, and by the faint candlelight he could make out great pointed stalactites that hung ominously overhead. Deeper and deeper he ventured into that cave, ignoring the smaller passageways that broke off in all directions trying to ignore the sounds of scrabbling and high-pitched chirping that could be heard intermittently. Until he turned a corner, and then there was space, and there was brilliant light, from hundreds of candles and lanterns and other sources of illumination with which he was not familiar in colours he'd only seen in brilliant sunsets, blues and reds and green glows from oddly shaped bottles. He blinked a few times as his eyes adjusted, and his gaze fell upon the unmistakable figure of Merlin, seated amongst not just the lights, but a whole array of magical paraphernalia crammed into every nook and cranny of this decked-out cave. Flasks filled with bubbling liquid connected to other flasks by glass tubing, dripping candles, huge leather-bound tomes, ground-up herbs and other stranger ingredients stuffed into boxes, Chests perilously stacked on shelves alongside gemstones, ornate mechanisms, parts of animals, snakeskins and rabbit's feet, and far weirder pickled things in bottles, and the whole scene pervaded by the sense of a great intermingling of incense which hung in the smoky air. There was not a part of this chamber which was not chock full of a panoply of items, each more mysterious and exotic than Roland had ever set eyes on before. The effect was overwhelming and awe-inspiring, and also kind of reassuring to Roland, who despite his brave face to his mother, knew well the reputation of the King of the Elves, and knew that his two brothers had failed, even though they had also gotten advice from Merlin, and so was still quite scared inside. But here, in this place, seeing this display, well, this looked like the home of a man who really might know how to take on the Elves. The warlock turned to his visitor, showing no surprise at all at Child Roland's arrival, and the young man thought that for just a second, Merlin's eyes flashed yellow. So, you've come now, Child Roland. It should not have come to this, he said, shaking his bearded head before locking eyes with Roland. But I know that you are the youngest, but also the wisest, and you may still succeed 
while others did not. And I shall show you what I showed them, the way to Elfland. And Merlin did not just give directions, but as he talked, shadows appeared, a play of flickering and moving images accompanying his words. The journey to Elfland, as he described it, was filled with all the usual topographical features of an epic quest, through an enchanted forest, across a boundless chasm, caves dark and deep, and the silhouette of Child Roland cast on the walls walked through them all. And all of that will be the easy part for a young man like yourself. But when you arrive in Elfland, I can instruct you no longer where you must go, but as long as you remember two things, you should be fine. Two things about your conduct in that world, remember them well. First, you must never eat of the fairy food, nor sup the fairy drink, no matter how hunger and thirst may consume you. If you ever let a morsel from that place pass your lips, then you shall remain there forever. And secondly, and do remember this well, child, every person, and I use that term lightly, <laughs> but every person you talk to upon entering Elfland, until you meet the Elven King, now you're listening carefully, boy, Roland nodded. Every person you meet until you meet the Elven King, you must kill. Leave no doubt about it. Chop off their heads to be absolutely sure if you must. Roland, untested in battle, he flinched, and Merlin saw it. It must be done, boy. Do not deviate, do you understand? Kill them all until you meet the Elven King, everyone you talk to. Do you understand? Child Roland gulped hard, but nodded. Can you do it? Do you have it in you to do it? To rescue your sister? Demanded Merlin. And Child Roland nodded again with slightly more certainty. Good, said Merlin. Now it's dangerous to go alone, so take this. And from somewhere under his voluminous robe, Merlin produced a sword. A sword Roland recognised a claymore that had belonged to the boy's father. No new sword for him as his brothers had, but an old one. And that was maybe all the better. And that was that. Advice dispensed Merlin had done his part. And now it was up to Child Roland, who set off to rescue his sister and to get his ball back. The journey to Elfland we will skip over in a montage of shots of deep forests, dark caves and boundless chasms, Roland traversing them all with relative ease. And at the end of all of that, no big gates, no signs saying welcome to Elfland, no cold callers please, no grand entranceway at all, just a landscape that looked exactly the same as the one he had just passed over, but which he knew was now Fairyland. And I presume that following Merlin's instructions precisely as he was, Child Roland had eaten a hearty meal and drank deep and long before he raised his sword and took that path in. There was a shimmer in the air as Roland crossed into Elfland. And apart from that, nothing. The moment was anticlimactic. He was not assaulted by elves from all sides. The landscape didn't change, didn't look suddenly strange and magical. The path looked like a simple continuation of the one he had been on. 
Had it not been for Merlin's exact descriptions and that slight shimmer, Roland would not have known he was in another world. But another world it was. He wandered on for perhaps half a day, deeper into this unfamiliar country, until he spotted a man. Or a being with the semblance of a man, but somehow other, somehow different. Neurons fired in some long, underused, primeval section of the parietal cortex that warned Child Roland that, appearance aside, this was no man. The not-man was busily working away as Roland emerged from the forest, and he was attending to a field of horses, horses attired with a finery Roland had never seen the likes of before. Silver and silks for saddles and bridles, all adorned with tiny, gentle, tinkling bells. If there had been any doubt in the boy's mind, it was banished. These were the horses of the King of the Elves, and this not-man, this elf was herdsman to the Elven King. Child Roland gulped and approached. And the man paid him no heed until Roland was within but a few feet of him. At that point he turned from his horses and regarded Roland with a friendly expression, as though he were a welcome guest, and seemed entirely to disregard the sword the young man had unsheathed. He smiled broadly, a smile which Roland did not return. He had prepared and wasn't going to be disarmed by this unexpected and surely treacherous joviality. Tell me where the king of Elfland's castle is. The horse herd tipped his head to one side, regarded Roland with interest, seemed to ignore the trembling, unfriendly menace in Roland's voice. He paused and then said, I cannot, which seemed strange given his job tending the king of Elfland's horses. I'm unclear whether his cannot was did not know or refused to do so or knew but was unable to do so for some magical reason or other. Child Roland was equally unclear, but the elf went on to be helpful anyway. You know what, though, if you walk on down this path, you'll meet the cow herd, and she might be able to tell you. Good luck with it. And he turned back to tending the elven horses. And Child Roland turned in the direction he had been pointed, down the path, somewhat confused. This was not how he expected it to be at all. His senses were still alert to danger, adrenaline coursing through him. He had taken a few steps when suddenly the memory of Merlin's voice rang clear in his head and he turned. The horse herd had turned his back to Child Roland now, was simply feeding the horses and showing them great affection as he did so. Ah, oh, have a carrot. Good girl, you like that, don't you? He said sweetly, having forgotten all about his visitor apparently, certainly showing him no concern. It must be a trick, an elven trick, that's what Child Roland thought. The voice of Merlin came. You must kill anyone who talks to you. Somewhere inside of him, Child Roland started to disconnect the image of this friendly man from any sympathy he might have felt. Look how unhuman he was. A little sugar lump for you? Elves who had stolen his ball, stolen his sister away, probably murdered his brothers. No, not another one. You've had too many already, girl. The elves who preyed upon mortals drove them into sin and dissolution, who murdered children and drove adults insane. Ah, you know I can't resist you. Just one more, mind you. Go on. 
the monsters from the beginning of time spreading disease in body and mind. Roland felt the blood rush to his head, his vision went red, he lifted the claymore, and as child Roland swung the blade with all the force he could muster, the elf turned his head for the briefest of seconds. His eyes widened as Roland screamed a Patrick Bateman-esque Ah! as the blade met the horse herder's neck and sliced through it. Blood showered out, horses screamed and ran in panic. The elf fell to the floor and Child Roland brought the sword down again and again, screaming and screaming until the creature was but a bloodied pulp. And finally, Child Roland collapsed to the floor. He sat there for a long while, but slowly a smile crossed his face. He'd done it. He'd done it. He could do it. He might be young, but he was just as much a warrior as his brothers. More so, for hadn't they failed? It had been so easy to take a life. And now he felt so powerful, so alive, looking at the ruined body of the elf, ignoring the sounds of the horses panicking. He rose to his feet and looked around, almost hoping that someone had seen him, a witness he could chase down and execute as per Merlin's command. But there was no one. And slowly that feeling ebbed away and some form of balance returned, though Roland felt more powerful than ever he had before. And I imagine he had to do a little bit of cleaning himself up. There was a stream nearby he used to wash the blood off as best he was able. And where he could not quite, for there had been a lot of it, he changed his garments to cover it. But his mind remained sharp, and though the water was cool on his hands, sparkling and clean and oh so refreshing, he did not take a drink. And when he was clean enough that he did not look like a man who had just murdered in cold blood, he took to the path again, leaving the body of the horse herd conspicuously behind him. There was a murderer in Fairyland. An hour or so passed as he wandered further down the road, and as the rush wore off, Child Roland found himself becoming more than a little hungry. But he pushed it out of his mind as he found a sudden little river crossing his path, and on the other side of it, a herd of cattle and a cow herd. Child Roland felt the hairs rise on his arm. His thoughts turned again to violence. He waded across that river and, on the other side, was greeted cheerily by this cowherd, who was almost, but not quite, human. Though she was not as wrong to Child Roland's eyes as the horse herder had been, in fact one could say that in her strangeness there was great beauty. Child Roland knew, of course, of the many men lured away by the seductive charms of elven women, and he could see why. Now he was no more an experienced man of the world in matters of the heart as in any other. And had she made any attempt to be beguiling, well, quite possibly the young man might have found himself beguiled. But she did not. She turned at his approach, showed no surprise at this human being here, showed no aggression, spoke in no strange elven tongue, gave no false lust. Simply a cheerful, Hello, well met, pleased to meet you. Can I help you with anything? For a moment, Child Roland was again caught off balance by this disarming friendliness. He stuttered a little, but then composed himself, remembered his purpose, thought of the sister he had to rescue. Can you tell me where the palace of the elf king lies? 
She shook her head sadly. I'm afraid I cannot tell you. But continue on for a bit, and you will come to the shepherd, and he might be able to tell you. She indicated down the path, and when Child Roland said nothing, she turned back to the cows. It came easier to him this time. Before, he had never killed. Now he had simply never killed a woman. Not that she was a woman, she was an elf. Child Roland felt inside himself for the hatred and the rage and the determination, and he found them all. He raised his father's mighty claymore and swung the blade with both hands, and she did not even have time to turn. The stroke this time was truer, neatly separating head from body, a body which slumped grotesquely to the floor as the head spun off. And Child Roland fancied that as it did, the eyes of the dead elf met his for just an instant and opened wider in surprise. It was all over in a matter of seconds. The elf surely deserved it for her dark sorcery, her wantonness, for all she had lured here, thought Child Roland. He was certain of it. He had done a good thing removing his horror from the world. He was the hero of this story. And all around him the cows mooed in distress. And down the road he went to find the shepherd his stomach giving more than a little rumble. I'm afraid I can't tell you, but you know, if you continue down this path, there's a goat herd, and he might be able to... The shepherd didn't even get to complete his sentence before Child Roland was swinging his sword. Murder came easy for the boy now, even though there was no resistance to him, just friendliness. He had to do it though, he was just following Merlin's orders. Though why exactly he had to do it? Well, the wizard hadn't been clear on that point. But if this was what it took, then he was very much the man for the job. The goat herd and the swine herd after the shepherd were equally unhelpful, and soon each lay in two gory pieces, Roland leaving a bloody trail of destruction behind him that had apparently alerted no one. And now he arrives at the henwife. The henwife who was feeding the chickens. This whole place, so far at least, was not as stories would have him believe, but as we all know, stories are very unreliable things. And the sensible amongst you would do well to ignore them. Don't listen to them at all, I say. Roland's hand was already on the hilt of his sword by the time he'd finished asking the question, where is the king of Elfland's castle? He was growing increasingly thirsty and irritable, and he was all ready to casually lop off her head as soon as she mentioned the name of another animal herdsperson that he had to hold himself back when the friendly answer came. Oh, laddie, you mean the Dark Tower? Just continue down this road a little more and you'll come to a great green hill. You'll want to go inside there, of course, she added. Which won't surprise those podcast listeners who've been with me from the start. Elves and going inside green hills somewhat go together. But she was still talking. Now, it won't be obvious how to get in, but that's okay. All you need to do is go around the hill three times Widdishans, and every time you do, say, Open door, open door, and let me in. And then, on the third time, going round the hill Widdishans, the door in the hill will open, and in you go. Widdishans was a word that Child Roland knew well enough. Counterclockwise, we might call it, the opposite way to the sun. 
a direction very much associated with magic. The instructions seemed very clear and concise and, if all correct, very easy. Though if she hadn't just volunteered that information, who knows how he would have got in. I hope that helps, beamed the henwife. Good luck with whatever it is you want with the king. Uh, thank you, stuttered Roland. And this time he hesitated again. She seemed so happy to help and... No, he caught himself. He reached for the sword. He saw the look of fear in her eyes and she turned, tried to run. No elven magics to save her, apparently. And Roland struck the blade through her neck, the blow carrying the head off, soaring into the air and then falling down amongst the chickens, scattering them in all directions with startled shrieks and squawks and the heavy beating of wings. Child Roland wiped the blood from his blade as he regarded the body of his latest victim. His stomach rumbled and his throat was sore. He repeated her words over and over to commit them to memory as he stared down at the lifeless body and its separated head. She wouldn't be able to tell him again if he couldn't remember. Elfland was not how he expected it to be, but he knew that without Merlin's help, if he hadn't followed the instructions so closely, terrible things would have happened. He knew all the elves would have killed him dead. All the murders definitely made sense. He thanked the warlock silently. He turned, and now he looked ahead on the road where, in the distance, he could just make out a green hill. He was going to rescue Bird Ellen and his brothers too if they should live. And he was going to get his ball back. In good time he came to the green hill, and he followed the instructions exactly. Walk around it three times, Widdishans. Open door, open door and let me in. Increasingly Roland had a dishevelled look. He'd been walking a long time, had been many hours without food or water, and had gone from never killing to taking six lives within the space of a day. It all took its toll on the boy. And atop that, despite his fervent faith in Merlin, he could not really know whether his siblings were alive or dead, or if he could even triumph against the King of the Elves. But the boy who had set out that morning was no more. As the door to the hill swung magically open, just as the henwife said it would, the Roland who stood in front of it, while technically a child in the meaning of that title, was a changed man indeed, had experienced far more than that mere boy who had passed through the shimmering veil into Elfland just a few hours before. The automatic door, a true thing of magic that, and I think that about all automatic doors, it opened into a passageway in the hill, the end of which Roland's eyes could not make out. There was only one way to go. Without hesitation he headed in, and the door swung shut behind him.
but he was not plunged into darkness, for this was not a pitch-black, dank, cold cave such as he might expect. No, it was lit, like the gloaming, or the twilight as some call it. Though the source of the illumination he could not make out. No windows, no torches, no lanterns, just light. The ceiling of the passageway was arched and studded with precious stones and minerals twinkling and winking at him as he walked. And the whole place was infused with a warm breeze. This strange place was much more like Elfland he had envisioned. Now he was, of course, without the spell to open the door back up from inside the hill. Perhaps he should have asked that before murdering the henwife. Just a thought. So onwards was the only way. The passage wound round and round and up and down and went on longer than Child Roland would have liked. He had been in this place a long time now. But eventually the passageway did come to an end. Two great doors that stretched from floor to ceiling. There was an imposing majesty about them, and though he should not be able to be sure, did not know this place, within his heart he was certain that this was it, his destination. Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. He pushed open the huge doors, which yielded only slowly, but yield they did and opened into a vast room. Child Roland stood on the threshold, his purpose and his hunger momentarily forgotten as he took in the space, which was unlike any he had ever seen before. Vast Gothic pillars reached from floor to lofty heights far, far above, higher than any cathedral that he had ever seen. Shimmering gold and silver reefed with flowers crafted from precious stones, rubies and diamonds and emeralds, and others he did not even have the names for, and hanging down from the ceiling on chains of gold, an immense lamp, hollowed out of a pearl of cyclopean proportions, completely transparent. Within it, suspended in the very centre by surely magical means, was a great red jewel, a carbuncle that slowly revolved, emanating from it a radiance as of the setting sun, bathing the whole place in a glorious lustre. And gentle listener, if you are thinking what I'm thinking when presented with this description of the place's lighting setup, well, I'm going to assume that the tower is, quote, dark, either from the outside, which Child Roland did not see because of the manner in which he approached it through the hill, or that the darkness was of a metaphorical kind. Or perhaps even that it once had been very dark, the King of the Elves thought we'd really need to get some lights in here, but by then the name had stuck. There was still more to describe in this gargantuan room at the base of the Dark Tower. The floors and the walls and the opulent furniture and so on and so forth. All like unto the fairyland that Child Roland had imagined. But a sight at the end of the hall took all this out of his mind. There, seated surrounded by gorgeous fabric and cushions of velvet, silks and furs, was Bird Ellen. 
Roland quickly crossed the great room to greet her, his unkempt, dishevelled appearance contrasting sharply with hers. She was washed and dressed finely, brushing her hair with a silver comb, though looking pretty miserable for all this. And when she saw him, she cried out. But rather than the delight of reunion he expected, she cried out sadly. Oh, Roland, no, no, not you as well. I'm here to rescue you. Oh, Roland, no, our brothers came too, she lamented, not mentioning their siblings' names, as is in keeping with this story. She trailed off sadly. Oh, Roland, I love you best, but please, please, flee now, the king will be coming soon. Rather than asking about the fates of his two brothers, which he probably understood from implication, Roland tried to reassure his sister. No, I'm here to rescue you. I'm a different man from the one you left. Don't worry, Merlin told me what to do and I'm going to get you out of here. But Bird Ellen sadly shook her head. She looked at him tenderly but so sadly her eyes filled with tears. Oh, Roland, he's terrible. His magics are so... There was a great pain there as she trailed off once again. But Roland hugged his sister tightly. We are getting out of here. And for a moment there was silence in the room as the two held each other in an embrace. A beautiful moment that was broken by the sound of Roland's stomach growling. Oh, you're, you're hungry, said Bird Ellen. There's food. And she broke the hug and looked around. And on an implausibly ornately decorated table there was a golden bowl filled with bread and milk and honey from which she had been eating. Here you go. Roland went to take the bowl from her hand. He was so hungry and thirsty now, and he'd found her now. He grasped the bowl. And then at the last minute he caught himself. His mind overpowered his body, and he flung the bowl away. Ellen cried out in alarm. And at that sound, and in that moment of remembering about the food, another thought crossed his mind. A terrible, dark thought. He took a step back from his sister as Merlin's words echoed in his head. This was her, he was sure, in flesh and speech and whole being, this was his sister. And yet, everyone you talk to until you meet the elven king, Merlin had said. And Roland had not yet met the elven king. The Roland of a few hours previous would never have been able to imagine his hands reaching for his sword, pulling it out, his expression. But this Roland could, and when he did, Bird Ellen looked around as if thinking someone, the Elf King perhaps, had entered the hall, never suspecting. But when she saw no one, she turned back, and Child Roland was somewhere far away in his own mind now, completely detached from the actions of his body as he brought the sword up. Roland! cried Bird Ellen, terror and shock in her eyes. What are you doing? No! And when he did not stop, she turned, went to flee, and he lunged after her, swinging the weapon. There was a terrifying scream from Bird Ellen, and murderous Roland connected the blade to her head, not slicing it off cleanly, but knocking her to the floor with the blade, a sickening sound of his weapon smashing into her skull, and then of her skull striking the stone of the floor, 
There she lay, gargling horrifyingly. That desperate, choking sound cut through Roland's icy emotion, and now he saw his sister, blood streaming from her smashed-in head, vomiting more blood on the floor. And now it was anger that filled him, an awe-consuming red rage, and he brought the blade down again and again. Wet cracks echoed through that great hall as the blade sliced through flesh and bone and hit the floor again and again until head was separated from body and both lay still in a gory mess. Oh, listener, if you are familiar with this podcast, you might know how I feel about stories and I almost want it to end here. This has been Tales of Britain and Ireland. That's it. See you next time. And if you feel the same as me, you can switch off now. But if not, let's properly imagine this scene now. The tiny child Roland in the middle of this enchanted, vast, ostentatious palace of earth and stone and jewels, the mangled corpse of his sister lying a few feet away. And Roland having obeyed every instruction? This should be it. Somehow she should be free. The woman he had just murdered. But as the seconds passed by, he is suddenly assailed by tremendous doubts and an unspeakable fear that shook him out of his murderous rage until he was but a small, frightened boy again. He had done everything right. He couldn't think straight. His insides churned up. And though there was nothing inside of him to chuck up, he vomited all he could over the pristine, bejeweled floor, now dirtied by a sheen of bile. It was such a hard thing he had been asked to do the worst thing, but he had done it, turned himself into someone who could kill his own sister. He couldn't look at the body, he couldn't look at it, he wasn't going to, he looked at it. He wiped his mouth, shuddering, his throat burned, and he couldn't take a drink to soothe himself. Child Roland was a wreck. But he had done what his brothers could not. He had taken Merlin's instructions to their logical conclusion. His siblings had balked at this, but not Roland. And in the very depths of his misery and his growing madness, he heard a sound like thunder and a great voice saying, Fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of a British man. Be he alive or be he dead, my brand shall dash his brains from his brain pan. Now I imagine what happens next as though it's the beginning of a boss battle in some late 90s third-person perspective computer game. The player is suddenly no longer in control. The camera wheels away from the player's character as loud battle chiptune music plays. The whole place starts to shake, little pixelated dust maybe even falls down from the blocky textured jeweled roof. There's a sound like thump, 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 and the camera pans back to reveal the king of the elves walking into the room in all his glorious 640x480 blocky form. He's shouting. 
Fee-fi-fo-fum, as may be the words, the elven king. Zoom onto the screen as he swings his mighty sword behind them. And then without warning, the player has control again, and the elf king is attacking. Now, despite his use of fee-fi-fo-fum, he wasn't a giant, but he was still an imposing, wild figure. There's no description of him given, but... Let's just go with what we all know. An antlered figure, clad in green and jewels with burning red eyes, wielding a thorn-studded blade of sharpened wood, creepers and vines woven around his limbs. And Charles Rowland arose, all his misery and worry about Bird Elland replaced in an instant. He had something to focus on now. Here was the cause of all his woes. Right here, the world became in this moment very simple. He raised his sword and he charged, leaving the broken body and head of Bird Ellen on the floor behind him. Roland screamed and the Elf King bellowed and they fell to battle. A ferocious battle it was. Now you might think that this inhuman, magical being, centuries old if not older, would have the advantage over the young man, tired and hungry, who was reeling from the emotional, psychological damage of having to decapitate his own sister. But Child Roland was holding his own. Because, as I said at the start, in many stories of the fairies and all their power, there's an important corollary. For all their strength and magic and riches and wisdom and maliciousness, they are bested time and time again by humans because humans have iron and sometimes God and sometimes are magic users themselves and in this case it was that latter that was important because Child Roland had done everything Merlin had told him unlike his brothers who had fallen at that final hurdle who had not the ruthlessness or the faith to follow through with the awful ultimate act and kill their own sister but Child Roland had And now the outcome with the battle was an inevitability. As fierce as the king fought, he could not overpower Child Roland. Each of his mighty strokes was parried, and Roland's own attacks came down fiercer and faster, until in one mighty blow Roland cast the king to the floor. He towered over this thing that was like a man, but not quite. Raised his sword for the killing blow. Spare me, and I'll return your sister to you, said the king. Roland paused. Was this a feint to stop him landing the final blow? Kill everyone, Merlin had said. Everyone until you meet the Elf King. Until. Roland paused, held his sword in the air above the prone Fay. The King didn't try to take advantage of Roland's indecision. The previously fearsome figure was truly cowed. Instead, he offered more. And your brothers too, I can save them, they are not dead. Do it then, said Roland. But try anything, and I'll take your head, just as I've taken so many others. Slowly, to show he wasn't a threat, the king produced from somewhere on his person a vial filled with a bright red liquor. He went first to Bird Ellen, watched carefully by Child Roland. And the king anointed the still warm lips of that decapitated head 
her nostrils, her eyelids, her ears, and then finally moved to the other portion of her body, where he splashed some of that liquid on her fingertips. And there was a kind of flicker in the air. And then there she was, alive, sitting up head exactly where it should be, recoiling from the king of the elves and then running to Child Roland, hugging him, thanking him. She had known what had to be done, but she had been unable to say. And now the elven king, good to his word, went to a chamber off the great hall and there were Roland's two brothers. And the king again used the red liquid and they too were resurrected and all four siblings were reunited. The elf king was defeated. But Roland too was good to his word and let him live. And as with any good adventure story, ours ends here in the hall. No description of the journey back through Elfland, past all those bodies, or even of the party's triumphant return to Carlisle to their astonished, joyful mother, to a proud Merlin, and of course, to the all-round lording of child Roland, a true hero. But before they started back on that journey, before the hero returned to the ordinary world, Child Roland turned back to the broken, beaten King of the Elves and addressed him one final time. Oh, one more thing. Can we have our ball back, please? And that is that. Is there a moral to this story, a meaning we are meant to take from it? And to that I'm going to give my usual answer of no. This is simply a real event that happened. The kind of thing that happened in the past a lot. An abduction by the fairies and a rescue. Is the necessity to kill everyone encountered ever explained? No. But was it necessary? Absolutely yes. This is a story about following instructions and doing as knowledgeable people tell you and also about the general weirdness of the elves and Elfland, and that's about it. But where did it come from? Well, this is a story and a half, so buckle in for this one. I'm not sure how interesting any of what I'm about to say is, but let's go through the convoluted history of this, starting with the basics. The source for most of the story which I've just told is a work by Robert Jameson from 1814. Jameson was a reasonably early Scottish ballad collector, who also collected Danish, German, Swedish and other Scandinavian songs and ballads and translated them into English. In fact, in many ways, that was his major work. Relevant for us, he worked with podcast notable Sir Walter Scott and another interesting character, Henry William Weber, to produce a work called Northern Antiquities, which was a book that predominantly translated German and Scandinavian ballads for a British audience. The story of Child Roland appears in that book as, well, kind of an aside, actually, where it is compared to a Danish ballad, or more accurately, a sequence of Danish ballads about a character called Rosmer Hafmand, which I'm clearly pronouncing terribly. And it's an illustration of similarities between Danish and Scottish ballads. Jameson includes the Child Roland section, saying that that ballad was in circulation during his lifetime and that he heard it as a child from a tailor, and frames it as part of a wider discussion about the influence that Norse tales may have had on Scottish ones. As Jameson says, quote, 
Almost all the superstitions and ancient popular usages which are accounted national amongst us, by which I mean Scots, particularly in the Highlands and Hebrides, are still found in various parts of Sweden and Norway. Unquote. So he's saying that this is a popular ballad that's probably come from elsewhere and citing the influence of Scandinavia on Scotland. And yet, despite this apparently being well known in his time, the first place this ballad is written down is in this very work. He claims that he heard it in his boyhood, which would have been the 1770s or 1780s, and Jameson becomes the sole written source for the story, which I've actually told slightly differently from how he did. I mean, I've changed some details aside from my usual just extrapolation of quite short texts. I'll come on to that in a bit. The Rosmer Halfman ballads he's comparing it to date to 1591, and he includes translations of them in his work, and there are definite strong similarities between those ballads and Child Roland, the most striking of which is the name of the main character, Child Roland, who in the case of the Danish ballads rescues his sister who has been stolen not by the King of the Elves, but by a merman, Rosmer Halfman, and a supernatural abduction is a definite parallel. As well as the key similarities in the names, the basic plot does seem to be the same, though there are also many striking differences. The merman's castle is under the sea, there's no elves, there's no ball, there's none of the decapitating of everyone else, no brothers, no not eating even. Roland becomes a servant or guest of the evil merman and stays there for years, and then he escapes, not battling the merman. So in that way, it's quite different. Oh, and in one version, Child Roland and his sister, who is sometimes called Ellen, they have a child together when they are prisoners. Yeah, that's right. And they are definitely still brother and sister. A lot to unpack there. There are incidentally many other folk tales and stories that contain these elements. And there is a general story tale type under that on Thompson classification system, Brother Rescues Sister, that this can fit into. So there's a lot of influence from various different stories in this. However, I need to exercise a real note of caution here in any conclusions about the Child Roland tale being older than the 19th century, because while the comparison seems pretty slam dunk, with a Child Roland character in both stories, there are two big potential problems here. Firstly, I am working with Jameson's translation of that Danish ballad. I cannot find any other English translations online, or even the Danish original, to check the very basics. Like that, you know, the names are in fact the same. And Jameson is very keen to make the argument that it is similar to Scottish Child Roland, so there's a potential for bias in his translation here to make his argument stronger. I really want to know how accurate that translation is, by the way, and I've been unable to find it, so if anyone has a transcribed version of either the original Danish or a different direct translation from Jameson's, I would love to hear about it. Please do get in touch. The other problem comes from the other side. Even if his translation is accurate, and the names and basic plot are the same as Child Roland, I can't be 100% sure that Jameson didn't either completely fabricate the Child Roland tale to be the same as the Danish ballad, or highly edit a version he genuinely heard as a child. I want to be clear here, I don't think that's actually likely, but it wouldn't be the first time we've seen this happen with 19th century folklorists, and while I don't want to tar them all with the same brush, we also can't completely rule it out. So, if somehow you've been keeping track, you'll know that at this stage we have a story that dates from 1814 that is possibly a retelling of a Scottish ballad that has certain similarities to a Danish ballad which is much older. By much older, I mean a couple of hundred years. 
Now it feels relevant to bring in one of the changes I made to that Jameson's original, which is that I called the King of Elfland's castle the Dark Tower. And I did that because many other writers who've riffed on this tale have also called it the Dark Tower. Why is that? Especially because in this story there isn't a tower. Well, for that, confusingly, we have to go back in time quite a bit and bring in Shakespeare. Because you see, there is a tantalising reference to a character called Child Roland in the Shakespeare play King Lear. In that play, first performed in 1608, a character called Edgar is pretending to be mad. He says a lot of mad things, and amongst them he says this. Quote, Child Roland to the dark tower came. His word was still, fie, foe and fum, I smell the blood of a British man. Unquote. And the eagle-eared amongst you will notice that we've got Child Roland and fee fi fo fum well, fee fo and fum at least, which is in Jameson's original story, even though the Dark Tower isn't. I hope you're keeping up, I barely am. This mentioning King Lear offers a tantalising glimpse that perhaps this story was around in Shakespeare's time, which would kind of line up with the 1591 Danish ballad, actually, and make sense that this was a story in circulation then, and connected with Fi, Fo and Fum but not Fee, raising the possibility that this then survived in oral culture for 200 years only to be written down by Jameson in 1814. None of this, by the way, says when this tale originally originated. Now, Jameson is very aware of that scene in King Lear, and he says precisely that, that the ballad was well known in Shakespeare's time in England and has been preserved in Scottish balladry. That's what he thinks happened. He's very keen to stress that when he heard the ballad as a child, he didn't know King Lear. But my sceptical side says, isn't there the possibility that he knew it and incorporated fee-fi-fo-fum into his telling of it? And yes, yes there is. You might ask, why do I care about these things? Does it matter if this tale could be 200 or so years older? And the answer is, no, of course it doesn't. But this is the kind of thing I do and get hung up on for some reason, and I should probably have that looked at. So, that just about covers the sources for the bare bones of this story. Now, interestingly, Jameson tells that story as though the children have King Arthur as a dad, and Guinevere as the queen. He's strangely absent in Jameson's tale, rather than deceased, as in mine. But Jameson also says that in the ballad he heard, Merlin was in it, but Arthur wasn't. And he kind of inserts Arthur because Merlin was there, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me, which is why I did that whole Merlin not really being Merlin thing. Oh, and the other really key change that I made to the story that I've not mentioned yet, which very much cannot be justified by being in the original, it's just a wholesale change, is that Child Roland, yes, does behead lots of people, but he doesn't behead Bird Ellen. He meets her, doesn't chop off her head, and then fights the Elven King, and the resurrection that the Elven King does is used on the brothers instead. And that's even though that is clearly in contradiction to Merlin's instructions in the story. But that doesn't seem to matter. Anyway, to move on with this story, after Jameson's version, this actually ends up becoming one of the most popular British fairy tales. Because in 1890, a man by the name of Joseph Jacobs publishes a version of this tale in his incredibly popular work, English Fairy Tales. Jacobs, who I've mentioned a few times before but never got the chance to properly go over, simply because he's not really the ultimate source for lots of these stories, but is the reason they get well known, 
He's a Jewish Australian who became one of the top English folklorists and literary folklore storytellers at the end of the 19th century. He published the version of this tale, taken from Jameson, and it proved to be very popular and led to a whole load of versions of this tale in the 20th century. Interestingly, he introduced a key change that most of those stories subsequently include that I did not. And some of you might have been expecting this bit if you do know this tale. Jacob said that Bird Ellen ran around the church Widdishans, that's anti-clockwise, remember, and that's why she could be taken away. This idea clearly appeals to a number of people because since then it's been picked up in various different tellings of this tale and in wider fairy lore sometimes as well. In the original, Widdishans does get a mention, but only as the way to go around the hill to open it up. And while Widdishans has been connected with magic and witchcraft for a few hundred years, that particular motif of going in that direction allowing the fairies to take you, that, as far as I can tell, arose with Jacob's version of this tale. Otherwise, it's very similar to Jameson's, and it also doesn't have Roland cut the head off Bird Ellen. I decided to include the cutting off Bird Ellen head because, well, I think it just makes for a far better story, even if it's not original, or even Jacob's version. The earliest I've seen of that version, though there may be others, is Flora and Steele's version from 1918. She, like me, might have just picked up on that little irregularity about following Merlin's instructions, and it just seems better. I stick with it as a bigger change than I normally make to these stories, but it isn't in most versions of this tale, and I just want to be honest with you about this. Now, if you're still with me, wow, congratulations, we are really in the weeds now. But there's just two more things I'd like to talk about. Firstly, I went off down a little bit of a rabbit hole on fee-fi-fo-fum, or fi-fo-fum as per King Lear, a phrase that is almost universally associated with giants, but not in this case. What are the origins of this kind of nonsense phrase that comes in a lot of different but similar forms and may indicate smelling, according to some accounts? Well, that's an interesting one. It seems to be first written as fee-fa-fum in 1595, but in a text a year later, there's another reference which I just particularly like, as someone who is trying to research the origins of this phrase. This second earliest recorded use of it is in a work called have off with you to Saffron Walden. And I have to admit, I don't know anything else about that work. And it says, quote, Oh, tis a precious apothecomatical pedant who will find matter enough to dilate a whole day of the first invention of fi far fum I smell the blood of an English man. Unquote. Apothecomatical there referring to short, pithy phrases. Basically, that quote is saying that people can spend forever trying to work this out, and it's pretty much unknowable. Which makes me a precious apothecomatical pedant, I suppose. And this happens to relate really neatly to the whole discussion about tracking down origins of stories, as I think it's a perfect example of the sheer limitation of the written record. Here is a phrase so well known that an author can refer to it offhand, fully expect his audience to understand it, heavily implied that it's very old, well known, and yet, despite him being able to do that, this is the oldest reference to it that survived to today. Which I think is just a good example of how much we just do not know about stories circulating orally in the past. Deep breath. Now, I kind of wanted to go off on one about the Elven King as a figure, but I've cut that as this is far too long already. And because there's one thing I really should mention. Because, separately to this story, Child Roland, as mentioned in King Lear, inspires 
a very popular poem of the 19th century called Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came. The poem has nothing to do with the story I've just told you, but is based on that single line in King Lear, but taken in a completely different direction. Written a single day in 1852 by Robert Browning, who was a popular English poet and playwright, it's a poem that still crops up to this day. It's open to a lot of interpretation, but it tells of a child Roland who is a knight of sorts, who has been searching with a band of others for a dark tower and he is now the only one remaining, and it's full of visceral, haunting, dark imagery. It's kind of a little off fury and gothic. I'll quote this line about the protagonist crossing a horrible river. Quote, Which, while I forded, good saints how I feared, to set my foot upon a dead man's cheek, each step or feel the spear I thrust to seek, for hollows, tangled in his hair or beard, it may have been a water rat I speared, but ugh, it sounded like a baby's shriek. That kind of thing. Superb. And at the end, Child Roland reaches the Dark Tower. And I love this poem because you know me at all. It has that one thing that is one of my favourite storytelling devices. A bleak, ambiguous ending. Beautifully concluding with the line, spoilers here, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. I absolutely adore it. I was going to read it here, but not sure who would have liked that. I don't think I actually got the rhythm of that last bit right at all. And it's not relevant to the story, but I have linked it on the website, or, you know, just Google it. And it's this poem that inspires Stephen King's Dark Tower, which I didn't reference in this episode because I haven't read it. And I think that will just about do for the discussion section on Child Roland. To sum up, it's a story first written down in Scotland in 1814 that might date from a few hundred years earlier, transmitted through oral culture, probably has connection with Danish ballads, links to Shakespeare, and which was popularised much later at the end of the 19th century, and which I then changed around a fair bit. So, all that remains now is for me to firstly thank my patrons. As I said at the beginning, I'm moving into a whole world of live shows and the like now, and that is very much thanks to the support I've received from all the patrons and from the very kind reviewers and indeed listeners of this podcast. Because of the big hiatus at the end of last year, it's been a long time since I did a Patreon episode. I'm now aiming to get one out for March. And as always, you only ever get charged when I release one. There are 11 members episodes so far, and hopefully there'll be that 12th very soon. And I'm also looking at some new rewards for the top tier of patrons now, so watch this space for that. Also, I will repeat that I have a gig in Manchester from my Murderous Monsters tour on the 28th of February, which at time of release has not sold out. And I will be adding a page to my website of all my upcoming live shows. And I'll sign off by saying the next episode is going to be my 50th, and on that I am covering probably my favourite topic I've not touched upon yet, a selection of stories all about boggarts. And I hope to have something a bit special for that episode as well. Thank you all so much, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you will join me again very soon. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. 
The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.